The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. Can Russia make OPEC great again, or is the United States now the dominant force in black gold? Ford sends boss Mark Fields to the junkyard, but keeps longstanding chairman Bill Ford on the road. And meet the Zoller, the new pseudo-currency in Zimbabwe created by electronically counterfeiting U.S. dollars. These are the stories we'll be tackling later in this week's Views Room, a weekly conversation among Breaking Views columnists about the ups and downs of the world of finance. I'm Jennifer Saba, and my colleague and co-host is, as ever, Anthony Curry. Anthony, welcome. Good day. All right. So we're going to begin with President Donald Trump's plan to balance America's books by 2027. Mick Mulvaney, the administration's director of Office of Management and Budget, that's a mouthful, this week laid out proposals to cut $3.6 trillion of the government spending over the next decade. He also expects the economy to grow enough to boost federal coffers by $2 trillion over the same period. Okay, Anthony, you looked at this monstrosity of details and numbers. Do they add up? Well, I mean, they add up because because they made them add up. Um, you can look through it and find that you know, it's the, like Zimbabwe. Exactly. <laughs> look, I, I I don't think there's any errors in the Excel spreadsheet. Let's put it this way. But there are a huge number of assumptions going in here, and frankly, uh, some pretty nasty stuff as well. It's very complicated. But tick through a, a few of the assumptions that they're working on. Okay. I mean, let's let's start with with what they want to do. I mean, the, Trump's idea is is that he really wants to fund give more money to the military. So the idea is to boost spending there over the next 10 years by about 10% a year, right? So that's, what, 50-odd, 60, 60-odd billion dollars a year. So and that, that's and that sucks up really the most. I mean, that, that typically is one of the biggest parts yeah, of the budget. Yeah, it's one of the biggest parts yeah. of the budget. It already accounts for, I think, $500, $600 billion a year. Um, and, you know, considering what he said on the campaign and what Mulvaney is saying about, you know, going around and making sure that tax... But he basically says this is a taxpayer's budget. We're looking at this through the eyes of taxpayers. What can we really go to taxpayers and ask them to pay for? Well, one department that really needs to be sorted out uh, from an accounting perspective is the Defense Department. It has been on the watch list for, uh, on the risk list, the watch list risk list, as it's called, for the uh, Government Accountability Office for the past 22 years. You know, we talk about $20,000 spoons and whatever, what have you, the Defense Department. But they're not worrying about that at all. It's the one, area, one, one part of the government that is getting no oversight whatsoever. So there's apart. a lot of fat to be trimmed from exactly. that part of the I mean, government. Exactly. I mean, right. the, the dependent gun itself came up with an uh, a internal paper that was then suppressed but discovered by the Washington Post, which showed that over five years they could probably cut $125 billion from the budget purely uh, by being more, more progressive in how they think about what they do with the money. Um, so that's number one. Number two, he's got to find ways of funding that and some of his other pet projects. And actually, that, that's a little bit rude. He wants to spend he wants wants a trillion dollars spent on infrastructure, which is great, although it's probably not enough money, but the government can't do everything. And the government is setting aside $200 billion to do that. The rest will come from, wow. from, so from, private, uh, from private investors. Um, and you know, whether that works or not is another debate, but you know, they want, he wants money there. So you've got to find places to cut. Also, you've got a budget that is now running as a $20 trillion deficit over the past few years for various reasons, the recession and everything else. So they're trying to find a way of, of, of balancing that while also spending money. So what do they do? They go through and they cut things they don't like. And in some respects, you can think, fine, there, there are certain things that need looking at. And Mulvaney was saying, look, um, there may be things on, uh, that we spend money on where we have you know, 6% hit rates, where it works well, where we've not researched things for years, where we no, haven't looked at whether thing, the, the money we're spending actually reaches the people in need. 
that's great. But what this means is basically saying, okay, we're gonna we're gonna cut a lot of Medicaid, we're gonna cut children's health insurance, and we're gonna cut um, money for food stamps. There are reasons to look at all of these programs. Food stamps, for example, used to uh, be used by 27 million people before the financial crisis. It went up to 48 million in the crisis, and has now come down to just 44, 45 million. So it's like, okay, what's the problem here? Do we need to do something about this? Are there people on here who shouldn't be taking food stamps? There probably are. Is it 16 million people? I very much doubt it. I don't think that many people are, 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 are that conniving. Um, but you know, the way that they describe this is so immoral. They talk about it as, let me just get the words right here. They talk about they want to strive to replace dependency with the dignity of work through welfare reform. Just- okay, so, <clears throat> so let, let's stop here, though, also because... Right now, the workforce seems to be kind of up to its capacity, right? Yeah. So, like, they're assuming that there's, like, more room for job growth. No, absolutely. I mean, this, this is where the whole thing comes to. This is your typical trickle-down economics. We can like trickle-down Trumponomics now. We can afford to cut all these welfare benefits because people will, of course, go out and get a job, which means they won't be stuck. But if you start off saying we're going to cut, we're going to cut it, you're basically taking away the support these people get, whereas opportunities aren't that big out there. I mean, sure, you may see the economy growing, but an economy that even grows at 3% a year, which is what they're expecting by 2021, is not a very, very fast-growing economy. Um, And that still requires a 60% jump in productivity from where we are today. That takes a lot of doing. What they're saying on the jobs is, look, okay, let's try and kind of forget about the fact that we're at basically full employment at 4.4% employment rate at the moment, unemployment rate. Um, what Mulvaney is saying is, look, look at a different number, the underemployed, which is the so-called U6 number in, in the Bureau of Labor Statistics. And that shows a difference of 6.8 million people. They could be part-time, they could be uh, working part-time, they could be... Uh, in the gig economy. Exactly. They may simply be uh, uh, in a wheelchair or they may be disabled some other way and they won't be able to work full-time. He's saying, let's get all these people back to work. Well, maybe they can't work. Maybe part-time is all they can afford to do. Maybe they have other commitments that, that, that mean they can't go and find a job. Maybe there's not a job in the area. Maybe they're not, they haven't got the training for the jobs that are out there. And there is absolutely no provision in this budget, from what I can tell, for helping retrain people who are underemployed to make sure they get into the workforce. So there's a huge assumption there that all these people can suddenly find work and yet he's still assuming that the unemployment rate rises slightly overall to 4.8 percentage points, right? It's absolutely ridiculous. But the whole reason this is meant to work and make the numbers add up, as you asked at the beginning, is because if you have enough more people in the economy, your tax receipts will go up, which seems to be, and I say seems to be because there's no real information on this, seems to be why he thinks that there will be $2 trillion of net economic benefit from this plan. And it's, it's as we said in our piece earlier this week, it's voodoo economics. It's really just hoping that everything goes right and not really assuming that anything will ever go wrong, which in you know, budget planning at the best of times never happens. All right. So what was also unusual about this is President Trump is off on his first foreign trip. So he's not even here to deliver this, usually, which is, is, a, is a big deal, yeah. deliver this to Congress. So he's kind of like, you know, all right, listen, I'm off meeting the Pope and whatnot. So now Congress is left looking at this thing, and usually these, the first draft out, it, it's not going to come to any sort of fruition. No, actually, so it's, so it's, here it seems like it's even way worse. I mean, like, it's Yeah, like, it's, 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 it's going to be very difficult to get many people in Congress to take this seriously. And there are various reasons. Yes, you may well have people, uh, especially in the House of Representatives, the so-called uh, Freedom Caucus, who like to see less government spending. They'll love anything they can do with that. But they've also got to think about re-election. 
right? They get re-elected. They get, there's election for all House seats every two years. So we're, what, 18 months off from the next election. Um, you really want to go out to your constituents and say, we're going to be cutting all of these benefits that may well affect you. I don't think that's going to be that easy a thing to do. But also, just getting it past the rules of the Senate, for example, is going to be tricky. There are rules in place that say you've got to make sure that things work over a 10-year period. Do we think this will work? Well, we want to see other assumptions. We want to see, you know, what about the tax cuts you're talking about? Tax cuts will decrease revenue. But you're saying it's revenue usual because the economy will grow. But are you baking this into the budget you just presented us? Well, you kind of assume that you're not from what you're saying, but we can't really tell whether you're double counting the numbers or not. Larry Summers, the former Treasury Secretary under, under Bill Clinton, in the 90s, wrote a piece for the Washington Post this week, decrying this, saying this is this this is bogus math. I would fail a first year economics student on this. I'm not sure that's quite what's happening here, but there's a lot of people out there looking at this on both sides of the aisle, saying this ain't going to work. What's the calculus for putting something like this out? Well, you have to. I mean, you you got to present a budget, then Congress goes through it. Often, what's presented by the White House never ends up being anything like what the Congress ends up adopting anyway. But it's it's meant to be start of a negotiation process. But you know. Yet again, with Donald Trump, we're seeing a very, very harsh stance at the beginning of the negotiating process, which I suppose means that if we only have half the cuts, half of us will start rejoicing and say, thank God it wasn't that bad. Maybe that's the calculus. We thought that on the immigration policy and other things that have come out in, in the first 130 days or so of the administration. Um, but also, I think there is a real desire on the part of the administration to cut costs, which in general terms is laudable if they should be cut. But also, you know, there's a great deal of economic theory in this to, to, to say we want real, true supply-side economics where everything works, it trickles down, and government should get out of the way. And that is maybe wonderful in theory in the economic textbooks, but just doesn't work day to day. Okay. So, Anthony, I'm sure we'll be seeing another draft of this, and you'll be digging into it. Thank you for your insight. Ah, pleasure. <laughs> Mark Fields is no longer chief executive at Ford Motor. The carmaker's board decided last week that it needed someone new after the stock had fallen 37 percent during his almost three years at the steering wheel. Executive Chairman Bill Ford, though, is still chugging along. Anthony, you've Hi. been following. Hello again. <laughs> you've been following the situation. Um, this happened earlier this week. What's going on at Ford? Well, I think, as, as you mentioned briefly last week in the show, Ford's stock price has dropped under Mark Fields' almost three-year tenure, 37%, while Fiat Chrysler's is up. Tesla's, of course, has been all over the place, but is up. And General Motors is down just 10% or so. And there are reasons why um, share prices have gone the way they are. Fiat Chrysler was coming from a very low base. It was the slowest to come out of the recession, of course, along with GM went into enforced bankruptcy under the government, but was really very far behind. And Sergio Marchioni, the the, um, chief executive, turned that place around quite well. It still has a lot of challenges, but it took longer to come back than Ford and General Motors did. GM, on the other hand, uh, came back... Uh, slower than Ford, quicker than Chrysler, but it has a somewhat better mix of cars for the environment we're now in. With all prices so low, and I know we're going to talk about all prices a bit later on, with all prices so low, people are going back to buying SUVs and trucks. Ford has a number of those, including the best seller of any vehicle in the US for the past 30, 35 plus years, and that's the F-150 truck. But it doesn't really have that as many as as GM does. So as a result, its margins and its sales haven't been going quite as well. It's had to work out what to do with the small cars that it's been building, which, as you may recall, after the crisis, having a capacity to build small cars and do it 
economically was a key thing that all the car makers were trying to do. And that was under Alan Mulally, the previous CEO who came in in 2006, and executive chairman Bill Ford. Yeah, so you argued that maybe not all of this should be falling into Mark Field's lap. No, exactly. Look, he's the chief executive, been there for 28 years. He ran the U.S. before uh, North America before he became president of the company. So look, he, his fingers are all over what's happened in Ford. A lot of what he did was exceptionally good over, the, over his years there. He was a bit of a turnaround artist, frankly, both in Latin America, uh, the joint venture with Mazda. I think he spent some time in Europe as well. But he took over from Alan Mulally at a time when the company was doing exceptionally well, and things just haven't gone as well for the company since then. And partly, it's you know, car sales are beginning to come down. And Ford has been the canary in the coal mine on that for a year and a half or so, in part because it doesn't have as many SUVs, as we've just been saying. So he's come in for a lot more criticism. He's also been trying to catch up with GM on um, connected cars and autonomous cars. Ford was a little bit behind on that, thought it would take a bit longer than, than others were betting on. And GM has this product that's been out there for quite some time on connected cars that just happens to fit quite nicely with what they want to do next. So um, Ford's been playing catch up, which hasn't really helped. But remember, I think, as I said last week, Ford is still uh, trades at the highest multiple of any of the car makers in the United States apart from Tesla. Let's just leave Tesla to one side. Tesla is not the reason why uh, Mark Fields has gone. It just isn't. I mean, the, the, the Tesla is a, is a class all by itself. Let's, let's talk about Fields' replacement, Jim Hackett. I mean, it seems that... Bill Ford didn't quite have a succession plan like this. Like no, he was this, caught this off was, guard. Yeah, basically, Hackett's been on the board for was on the board for three or four years. He's a previously ran a, a, a furniture maker. Was on the board for uh, a couple of years. Was tapped to become head of the uh, uh, Ford Smart Mobility Unit, which is basically everything to do with connectivity, autonomous cars, what have you. Which Field spent a lot of time developing along with with Bill Ford. So Hackett's going to come in. Basically, you, you look at what they're talking about. Said, so, you know, we will need to operate more efficiently. We need to come to decisions more quickly. We need to modernize the company, and we need to be ready for the future. Basically, that's a great big fu to Mark Fields, which is fine if he got it all wrong. But he's not the only one there. I mean, Bill Ford has been. He became chairman in 1999, CEO in 2001, had the smarts to realize he wasn't the best man for the job as the crisis came on, so brought in Alan Mulally to be CEO to help save the company. But Ford Ford was behind the huge $23 billion mortgaging of all the assets Ford, the company did in 2006 to allow it to pay its way through the crisis. He did a really good job along with Alan Mulally as executive chairman who he became. That's an important distinction. He wasn't just chairman. He was executive chairman. So he had a role in how the the company was run day to day, not just running the board. And he was executive chairman through um, Mark Field's tenure. And yet he's getting none of the blowback from any of the issues that Fields is being blamed for. So basically... Ford shouldn't be in the driver's seat. Well, I mean, arguably he's not. I mean, he's executive chairman, not CEO. But look, if you want to get rid of this, you probably don't want to get rid of the chairman and the CEO at the same time. Well, what about just saying, listen, why don't you just be chairman, run the board, and step out of the way yeah, and let your CEO there, 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 do, do their job? I think there are job. things that the board should be doing now, looking at Bill Ford saying, look, some of this, this is all on your watch. Right, and if you if if stock price is a problem, since he took over as chairman in two thousand one, the share the share price is down thirty one percent. Right, so uh, you, of course you can pick and choose your, your your date for looking at the stock price there. Since he became executive chairman, it's up thirty percent. So you know, go choose your number. Um, 
But he deserves to take some of the blame for what's happened. He's also the representative of the Ford family. And if they're annoyed, that 40% block has a lot of power, not just to get rid of fields, not just to make sure they, they can uh, stop other shareholders getting their way, but also if they think that Bill Ford isn't doing a job, they should say so. But the board itself should also be saying, OK, so we've just kicked this guy out because we don't think he's done a good enough job. Well, you're executive chairman. If you haven't done a good enough job, but you're staying, yes, maybe we should strip you of the executive title. But also, let's look at your pay. It's hard to claw back under their guidelines. Hard to claw back pay given what Ford's guidelines are, the Ford Motors guidelines are. It's normally for, you know, if you cheated or if you've done something horrible. Um, but they should say now, we're docking your pay for 2017. You deserve to take some of the blame for this. And the fact that this, but they've been completely silent on Bill Ford is really a bit of a travesty. All right. Thank you for that, Anthony. OPEC and its allies have decided to extend for nine months the oil production cuts they announced early this year. The goal is to prop up the price of the black stuff. But these oil-producing giants no longer have the monopoly they once did. Joining us to explain what's going on is our Dallas-based columnist, Lauren Silver Laughlin. Hi, Lauren. How are you doing? I'm good, thank you. How are you? Great, thanks. So, so tell us, we've got confirmation just coming through that that OPEC's going to keep these cuts going. It's not a huge amount they cut, um, you know, 1.8 million barrels a day or some such, wasn't it? Why, why are they doing this? Well, they're trying to basically control the amount of supply that's in the oil market right now in hopes that it will continue to bolster the oil price. Everybody, including the OPEC countries, benefit from higher oil prices, more profitable. Many of them are not profitable at all, the price where it's at now, or not very much. Um, so they're trying to basically manipulate the price so that it can go higher by pulling some supply out of the market. Is that going to work? I mean, obviously, we, we, we've still seen some fluctuations in the oil price. It's nowhere near as low as it got a year or two ago when it got down below $30 a barrel for, 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 for a bit. It's now, what, a 53-ish a barrel? How much higher would they really want it to go? Well, apart from to infinity, probably, but... <laughs> well, I, they're sort of in the sweet spot now, right? Because as it goes higher, of course, it then impacts demand. Um, so when oil prices were up at $100, it was uh, it was problematic as well. The interesting thing is that as they, you know, what sort of happened to the prices they cut, they also cut supply, you know, back, as you said, several months ago. And that helped buoy the oil price for a while. As the oil price stayed high, then other people who were profitable at this higher price started producing more. And um, and then gradually, over the last couple of months, the prices started to drop again. And um, and this has threatened OPEC and, and sort of made them concerned. And so they've then now extended their cuts one more time. One of our colleagues in London, Andy Critchlow, has written a piece, which I, I think you, you helped him as well, which was saying that basically Russia could be the country to help make OPEC great again because they're, they're, I wouldn't say they're colluding but they're certainly working together to try and make sure the oil price stays high. Is, is that doable do you think? It's interesting because yeah they have every reason to work with OPEC right. They too want a higher oil price and what they're trying to do is sort of link arms here against the uh, producers that have oil coming on at cheaper prices. So for now, it's pretty fascinating. They've decided that they want to work together. There's lots of rationale to sort of say, hey, why doesn't OPEC, you know, Russia just join OPEC permanently? Um, they're both kind of going in the same direction. They have the same common goal. And certainly in um, this instance, in the last instance, they decided to cut together. But the real issue, I think, as you pointed out in a great piece you did last week for us, is just how much more productive the United States has become. Talk us through that. 
Well, yeah, as the oil price has come from 30 to 50, the Permian producers are becoming profitable. So just be clear that the Permian is the Permian Basin in sort of the Western United States. Yeah, exactly. It's it's in West Texas. There's sort of lots of acreage there that people have started producing, and over the past you know several years, they've found a new ways to actually get the oil out of the ground, and um, and those uh, technologies have helped people pull oil out of the ground cheaper and cheaper. Um, and so now they're profitable at the current price, and a lot of the oil servicing companies like Schlumberger and Halliburton are pouring their focus there. So there's an argument to sort of say, hey, you know, at now it's, you know, $40 a barrel or they can get oil out of the ground. Maybe next year it's 30. This is putting some real pressure on OPEC. It's a massive oil field. Some estimates say that it's got a, you know, um, oil, it's the second largest oil field in the world behind Saudi Arabia. And um, it's, it changed the sort of dominance and the power in the oil market from OPEC to, you know, having some U.S. producers be really setting the price. This is a very new dynamic for the market. And so there's this jostling now happening between, you know, OPEC and the Permian market, which, by the way, the Permian market is completely a free market. Um, they're based solely on price. It's private enterprise that runs the market in the U.S. And so they're going to drill when it's profitable for them, period. They don't have the ability like OPEC does to kind of pull oil out of the market to manip- manipulate the price. And that's become very po- problematic. Um, so, Lauren, kind of going back to Russia and OPEC, you know, if Russia decides to kind of like you said, link arms with, with OPEC, will that help kind of mitigate maybe the rise in, in the Permian Basin? Or is the Permian Basin in, in West Texas strong enough to where even if Russia and OPEC kind of get together, it may kind of help, but not in the long run really matter that much? It's certainly the more people they have on board, the more it helps. But OPEC still supplies you know, the lion's share of the oil to the world. And so it, it's interesting because despite that, and even with Russia joining them, their supply cuts have not been enough to really affect the price to the point that it's important. The U.S. is still a net importer, meaning we use more oil here than we can produce. We will be like that for a while, if not you know, indefinitely, but for whatever reason, and it's basically because these oil companies in the U.S. are ramping up so much and supply has grown so much from here, um, it continues to f- affect the oil price, despite that these other countries, the, the oil is still needed from them. How much of this is is a, a story that is not about oil? So how much of the oil price here is being affected by other energy sources? I'm thinking here, obviously, natural gas has also come on a lot in the U.S. as uh, fracking has taken on, um, and the price is very low. You've also got, of course, uh, a lot of uh, renewable energy sources coming through. I think renewable energy now accounts for more new energy production in the U.S. uh, than anything else at the moment. So how much of that affects the oil price, or are we talking about completely different markets? No, it it affects it, certainly. Um, I I mean, it's hard to see it affecting a ton. People talk a lot about whether we've reached 
peak demand in, in oil. And um, there are certainly indications that people are using less than they have in the past. And it all sort of bakes into the same concept. So it, it's not necessarily a one for one, but the concept that, for example, in India and China, there have been regulations to encourage people to buy electric cars. That is something that sort of reads through to the crude oil market. Uh, and as you see other uses of energy you know, come online and um, affect demand in other places as well, it, it certainly reads into where prices are. And, um, and there's a question about oil's dominance and whether or not you know, it will be upended. And, and that's what kind of goes into the balancing act of the oil price as well. If, if oil spikes to $120 a barrel, certainly people will be going out and buying more electric cars. Mm. And and what about the effect of, of the Trump administration's policies? We've got two really I'm thinking of here. One is the desire to open up more fields uh, for drilling on government land. And the other, which came out this week in the budget, which we talked about just a few moments ago on the show, was that Trump wants to release uh, or sell roughly half of the strategic petroleum reserve over the next 10 years. What effect, if any, will those policies have on the oil price and OPEC's ability to affect it, do you think? In some ways, they're kind of contradictory policies. Both they're similar in the ways of, of Trump flexing his muscles and this sort of make America great again. Um, you know, on one hand, the concept of energy independence and opening up oil fields certainly gives the U.S. a lot of negotiating power and a lot of control on the stage. And the more that can happen under the Trump administration, the better he looks. Um, there are certainly environmental questions and issues that the companies themselves are concerned about. But um, so long as we can pump more oil in Texas and control the price of the oil market, then Trump's going to feel very satisfied. On the other hand, the fact that he is starting to release these barrels or suggesting it as a way to kind of stopgap the, the budget, in the long run, takes some negotiating power away from the U.S. Those barrels are used to help stabilize the price. It's essentially the only mechanism the U.S. government has, because we do have a privatized sector here, it's the only mechanism they have to control that price. The fewer barrels we have in reserve, then the more difficult it is for any government to say, hey, we're going to release some barrels, you better not do X, Y, Z. So uh, for now, you know, from a sheer oil standpoint, does it matter? Maybe, you know, maybe not. But in the long run, from a sort of global negotiating standpoint, it can be fairly dangerous. Laura, thanks so much for coming on. Great to understand more about uh, the wonderful world of black gold. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you very much. Finally, to Zimbabwe. Its economy is in a mess. The administration of nonagenarian President Robert Mugabe has come up with a novel solution, at least it thinks is a novel solution, to at least some of its woes. It's called the Zola. Joining us from London to explain what it is, and why it's no solution is Associate Editor George Hay. Hi, George. How are you doing? Hi, I'm very well, thanks. So tell us, what, what is the Zola? Well, um, it's, it's effectively an electronic dollar, but it's not really backed by anything. Um, you, you see, the thing that you need to understand about the Zimbabwean economy is that ever since about 2008, it hasn't used its own currency because for the very good reason that it printed so much of it that it had hyperinflation, so no one trusted it anymore. So since then, they've used the dollar. Um, but if you are a dollarized economy, uh, like they are, then you still need to balance your budget. And the administration of Robert Mugabe doesn't seem very keen on doing that. Therefore, they've got to a point where they're trying to kind of cut corners by effectively creating electronic ones through the banking system. How is this meant to work then? 
Well, um, I'll, I'll explain how it kind of works in principle, um, and then you will say, well, how does that work? But <laughs> the point is, it doesn't really. But, but the, in, in principle, the central bank just credits the accounts of the commercial banking system, who all have accounts with the central bank, like in any, in any other country. Then the, the commercial banks use that money to buy T-bills, and the government has the cash, and therefore government has cash to pay its bills, rather than the conventional way, which would be to collect taxes and then pay its bills. It's just doing it this way. You may well ask, well, how does anyone believe that kind of situation? And that's ultimately going to be the problem for Zimbabwe. Yeah, so, I mean, isn't this just a, a different way of printing money and just borrowing money? I mean, there's, there's, no, there's no economy here. Well, yeah, I mean, basically, the, the fundamental problem with the Zimbabwean economy is that they have a massive trade deficit. And if you're in a dollarized economy where you're using the dollar rather than your own um, economy, you, you can't kind of devalue your way out of it. You, you're just kind of stuck. So what you need to do is, ha- is export as much as you import. If you don't do that, which is what's going on at the moment, um, the, you, you, you rapidly start to run out of actual hard currency dollars. So the broad brush of what's going on here is that uh, in that situation, that dynamic has been in train for some time. And the Mugabe government has kind of, rather than kind of doing the sensible thing, which would be to balance its budget and kind of cut its massive public sector wage bill, which would kind of reduce the pressure, they, they're keeping it, things as it is and just <laughs> kind of making it up as they go along by creating these electronic dollars. And, then, and the, big, the big problem with that is, I mean... Uh, that only lasts for as long as um, the people who are being paid in it trust that what they're being paid is actually equal to uh, $1. But isn't it creating fake currency? I mean, it's, you know, it's, they're trying to be the US government and, and printing dollars, but they can't. So it's basically counterfeit dollars, isn't it? It's kind of it's a kind of central bank um, sober um, sounding and looking uh, way of doing exactly what you just said. Um, and the, uh, the the big problem is with that, I mean, in terms of, I mean, at some point the Fed presumably would have some kind of issue with that. But uh, this, it, compared to the kind of uh, dollars in issue around the world, this is very kind of small beer. The, the Zimbabwean economy is only fourteen billion dollars GDP. But um, the bigger issue for Zimbabwe is that if the people who are being paid in these things don't trust them, then they will, like in any other kind of hyperinflationary environment, they will just require much more of those electronic dollars to to do a normal transactions. So if you if you want to kind of buy a pint of milk, then and it costs a dollar, then you can either pay. Uh, if it goes on like this, you'll go you'll go from a situation where you can pay for that with a physical dollar, or you can pay five zollars or electronic dollars to to do that. And uh, at some point, that just becomes unsustainable because you for the same reasons as um, inflations always are um but it's a, it's <laughs> it's a, it's an extremely bizarre kind of place where they've ended up but uh, that's just that uh, they that kind of rather un- underscores the problems they've got in harare well this just sounds like one hell of a mess waiting to happen george let's get you back on in i don't know a few weeks a few months when the inevitable happens george thanks for coming on we'll speak to you soon thanks very much that's our show for this week. I'd like to thank my co-host Anthony Curry, as well as our guests George Hay and Lauren Silva Laughlin. Our producers this week are Bethel Hobday and Ross Shoulder. And I'd like to thank you all for tuning in. 
Check us out every day at breakingviews.com. Subscribe to The Views Room on iTunes, and please do share your opinions about our show. We'd love to hear them. We'll be back next week. Please do join us again. Thank you.